Okay, recording, go. Hello from Level 14 from the LSS office. We are here today for another episode of The Bar. Sit down, enjoy, as I'm sure you always do. We are joined today, Georgia, by... Mm. uh, Two of our biggest fans. Two of our biggest fans, two regular listeners. Uh, we'd it's love... quite hard to draw when we're drawing a crowd. The yeah. office is getting busy. Yes, yes. So during these sort of COVID times, our restricted numbers, because we'd definitely have more than two people if we could. But uh, we'd love to say they're invited guests, but they're basically just too stubborn to leave the office while we record. So uh, say hello to two people who have been on the podcast before. The first of them, Nick Plessis, sitting there studying in a lovely woven Ralph Lauren cap that looks like it uh, really broke the bank. (laughs) (laughs) Nick, nice to see you. Short shorts as well. Yes, very short, five inch. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he's making a bid to get back on. And and, uh, also sitting with us, Sammy Urquhart, who has been on the podcast before. Do you prefer Urquhart or Urquhart? Sitting with us, she has been on the podcast uh, giving us Zoom tips before sitting there, not doing a whole lot of work, but really enjoying life. How's things? Very well, thank you. Very good, very good. Sammy is uh, one of the great chefs. Sorry, <laughs> there's also a co-host on this podcast. <laughs> How are you, Georgia? <laughs> I'm here. Easily forgotten. I, just, as, I looked uh, I looked to her and I sort of had this look, this glaring stare, because I forgot to introduce her. Um, but no, we are, we are back for another episode of the podcast. Apologies for what has been a, a very unprofessional intro. but I need no introduction. They should know who I am by now. We're many episodes deep, Justin. That's exactly, that, that was exactly my thinking. But uh, <laughs> a couple of episodes ago, if you are a regular listener, which I'm not sure why you would be, uh, we recorded with Leslie Hitchens. And before that, we announced some of our goals for the coming weeks. Uh, and by the time the, the podcast aired, we had hoped to achieve those goals. And I'm very, very happy to report that Georgia, at least, has, has knocked them over. What were they and, and how did you get them? I believe they were firstly not procrastinating, so doing my assignment. Uh, that was a very well-fought battle between me and my computer and yes. TikTok. <laughs> are, you on, are you on TikTok? Genuinely? Oh, embarrassingly, yes, I am. Do you have any... Do you dance? Do you... Oh, no. Gosh, oh, okay, no. Gosh, right, no. Okay, I, I don't that. actually post videos. Yep. Um, I just watch stuff. But what is really scary is how accurate the algorithm is. Like yes. Those TikToks... Do you have it? Oh, I'd love to say I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know those videos that come up and they're like, if you're watching this, you are, and then it like yeah. there's the quality. They're always yeah. bang on. It's embarrassing. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't think they've gotten it quite right for me. <laughs> really? I, I never really get. I get a lot of cooking content. Okay. And I don't. I. It's not really my thing. Mine and Pless would be proud of me. Mine is all stocks. Um, yeah. A lot of like small business owners, which is interesting. I get. And a lot of people like my age, so like yes. mid, early to mid twenties, making fun of everyone else on the app. Well, good thing. Good thing it's not banned. That's for sure. It went close. TikTok. Ba- oh, banned. Yes, banned. yeah, yeah banned. <laughs> <laughs> Sammy, you're on TikTok, aren't you? Oh, I dabble in it. 
Yeah, she dabbles in it. I don't know. I don't know how well the mic's been picked up there, but, but she said she dabbles dabble. in it. Well, yours has lots of cooking on it, and I know that that's mm. been something on your mind recently. Not yes, you cooking as such. I think it's your microwave that's getting a workout. Yes, uh, tell I think, us a bit I think about. I did mention before. Great segue, by the way. I think I did mention before that I'm on uh, these new sort of pre-prepared meals. Uh, my muscle chef is what they're called. Mm-hmm. Really enjoying them. Got one in the fridge. Sammy's off. See you, Sammy. Bye. Enjoy. <laughs> Yeah, you can close the door. It's all right. Um, yeah, got one in the fridge, a Sri Lankan curry with cauliflower rice, which I'm looking Yum. forward to having. Um, yeah, really enjoying them. And, and uh, yeah, it's safe to say I hit some of my goals as well, which is mm-hmm. good. We've yeah. been hearing about some of the more shocker of meals. Can you... What's oh, been yeah. oh, good? What's been the worst? There's How's been some rubbish ones. There's been some rubbish There's this tarragon chicken one that promises a beautiful succulent chicken with a juicy sort of sauce. And it is just all vegetable. It is all vegetable. There's more corn in the thing than chicken. Oh, I, look! I, I hate. I you know I hate cynics. I hate people that complain <laughs> about things. But this really riled me up. I think if you're going to pick a veggie to have an entire meal out of, you wouldn't pick corn. No, it's a and bad not, vegetable. Just ridiculous. Like, and and it was really soggy. Like, there's a massive difference between juicy and succulent between and like soggy. You know, okay, every time we say succulent, all I can think of is that meme that's like a succulent Chinese meal. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, what's his name? Um, um, I don't know, but he's getting put into police car. Dowser Dow or something. Oh, it'll come to me. It'll come to me. But, yeah, it is one of the great arrests. Um, yeah. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, so a- anyway, look, I think, uh, I think I haven't really quite mastered the cooking yet, but uh, if TikTok keeps showing me videos and I can keep ordering... My muscle chef, then I'm sure it'll be easy, easy enough. Are you? Do you cook? No, God okay. no. I we were talking about this earlier. I've actually I still live at home, and I've been eating the same meal for dinner and lunch for like the past three or four days. Which is a very yummy green chicken curry. Okay. I've been enjoying it, but I think eight times in a row I'm sort of at my limit, and it's still there. Every now and then my mum cooks a big spinach pie. Mm. And no, I'm saying a big spinach pie, like the size of this table. <laughs> Not quite. But, um, and yeah, you there's... You must have a big fridge. Six, <laughs> six members of the family and, uh, and a dog. And How long does it take to get through it? A couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It keeps well. Um, you must have a huge oven. Oh, I don't know how she does it. <laughs> I don't know how she does it. But yeah, I've, yeah, in my family, I, I don't think anyone else cooks, to be honest, which is which is a shame because I'd love to learn. Um, and I think my dad's just as useless as I am. As I am. But that's a nice little transition into mm. into this episode, actually, um, where we will be exploring some of the kind of uh, preconceived gender roles um, and conceptions in the legal profession. Uh, some of the sort of more uncomfortable truths, I think it's fair to say. Mm, definitely. Uh, it's very exciting conversation we're about to have. Yes. And that was a 10 out of 10 segue from you as well, Dustin. Thank you. Thank you. Um, would you like... Our ideal form of transport. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> would you like to introduce Georgia, uh, our very, very distinguished guest today? Sure. Sorry, I've been holding that joke in <laughs> all morning. Um, so welcome to the podcast, our guest. Her name is Jane Needham, SC, and was admitted to as a legal practitioner on the 3rd of August in 1990 and commenced her practice as a barrister. She joined 13th floor St James's Hall as one of the foundation members in early 1991. 
and she was appointed senior counsel on the 29th of September in 2004. Yes, Jane specialises in equity and succession law and has lectured at university and spoken at professional development conferences on these topics. Uh, she provides advice to clients on succession planning as well as acting in all aspects of estate litigation. She has also appeared in significant inquiries and inquests, including for large institutions in the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse uh, and also the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety, as well as revenue cases at first instance and on appeal. Jane was a judicial member, then a, a deputy president of the Administrative Decisions Tribunal from 2002 to 2011, and was a divisional head of the Revenue Division. She was the president of the Bar Association from 2014 to 2015, and has served on the Law Council of Australia. Yes, and finally, she was named Lawyers Weekly Senior Barrister of the Year in 2013, Women Lawyers Association, Woman Barrister of the Year, and UTS Faculty of Law Alumni Award for Excellence in 2015, as well as being named one of Australia's 100 Women of Influence from Fairfax and Westpac in 2014. In 2016, she achieved a national award, Women in Law's Barrister of the Year. It is certainly a very, very impressive resume, and we're very excited and a little bit nervous to have Jane on the podcast. Welcome, Jane. Thank you very much, Justin. Thanks, Georgia. Jane, we've heard a lot about your distinguished career um, and in that time, we know that you've answered some very hard-hitting questions. We're about to throw you one that is probably the most hard-hitting of all of them. If you're a drink at the bar, what would you be? Ah, if I were a drink at the bar. Not any particular bar, but the bar. <laughs> uh, I, my current favourite cocktail is something called Elderflower Gin Bubbles. And it's got elderflower cordial, it's got soda water, it's got gin, it's got lime, it's got a raspberry. So it's a little bit complex, a little bit sparkly and a little bit sweet. So that's me. Well, that sounds yum. Elderflower is very fancy and sparkly. I like that. Beautiful. <laughs> it's definitely a little bit more substance to a lot of the ones that we've had before. I think I might have said beer or something. So. <laughs> <laughs> It's nice to hear a bit of an explanation about why you think that fits in with you. Yes. Well, I forgot a bit about the bite of the lime. So there as well. So you've got to lime, lime is great. I, mm. Mojito's one of my favourites, which is very limey as well. Lovely. Yeah. Constantly finding uh, little aspects of you, Jane, um, which was definitely the case when we did our research for this interview, to be honest. Looking up your name on Google brings up a whole sort of wealth of information. Uh, which we've already spoken a little bit about in the intro. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your job right now as a barrister and an advocate for women in the profession? Uh, well, my, my day job, which pays money, is being a barrister, as you know. I'm a senior counsel and I work probably about 70% in succession, equity, trusts, doing both advocacy work and advice work. Uh, quite often I'll advise uh, wealthy people on succession planning, um, code for how to leave their children out of their will uh, or restrict their children's access to money. Um, not much fun, but it's got to be done. Uh, a lot of the cases I do are disputes between family members about people's estates. And about 30% of what I do is uh, inquests, inquiries, royal commissions. But a large part of my non-paying work is as... Um, a senior woman in the profession, uh, helping younger women generally and also younger men navigate their way through 
uh, what can be a fairly confronting and difficult path of dealing with sexual harassment. And that's been very much on the front pages lately. Yeah, it's definitely been at the forefront of discussions in the legal industry at the moment. Just before we started, Jane was saying that currently we have 23% of the women in the sorry, women at the bar. Yes. And they don't get that percentage of work. Do you can you explain a bit why that might be or what problems are facing women at the bar in particular? Uh, well, it, it's very interesting actually because um, one of the uh, one of the um, pro uh, policies that I tried to bring in during my period as president of the Bar Association was called equitable briefing, where people would sign up to commit to briefing women in the percentage, the same ratio as they exist, <laughs> if you like. Um, and so we're looking at trying to brief women in about 30% of, of matters junior women particularly. Uh, while that has been successful to some extent, it still is the case that if you look at numbers of briefs, we're still not getting the same numbers of briefs. And if you look at the value of those briefs, we're definitely, definitely not getting the value of those briefs. And a number of different people keep stats, um, some formal, some informal. Justice Kuntz of the Equity Division keeps a record of how many women actually have speaking roles in his court and it's very low compared to the number of women at the bar. Uh, Kate Eastman, who's well-known silk in this area in human, human rights and equal opportunity, uh, keeps notes of women in reported cases. And again, apart from criminal law, women are very much underrepresented. Why is that? Well, the only reason I think can be structural misogyny. Something like my 13 year old boys are very familiar with me talking about um, when they say, mum, why isn't it sexist for the girls to have a special area at school? Structural misogyny, that's why. Anyway, um, they, I, I really think that apart from the fact that there are fewer women to choose from, one of the issues that we have is that the senior level of the profession in the solicitors branch who send us our work. While there are 50% women there, which is fabulous, they've just ticked over to 50.5%. It's mostly in the junior level. So we're still dealing with male senior partners, employing senior associates who look and act like them, briefing the people they feel comfortable with, you feel comfortable with people who look like you. That is one of the problems. So and, there are many more, but that's basically it. Sure. And, and Jane, you did mention a little bit before that we're seeing some slow progress. Um, mm -hmm. We know as you, when you stepped down as the president of the New South Wales Bar Association in 2015, you quoted 20% of women at the bar. Um, that's now up to 23. Do you see any real substance in those statistics or is it still quite sort of steady progress? Uh, look, I think it's steady progress. When I came to the bar <clears throat> 30 years ago, uh, there were 13% of women at the bar. So it's taken a long time to get that extra 7% mm -hmm. and only five years to get that extra 3%. One of the issues we do have is retention of women at the bar. And while people stick around, um, we lose a lot between about seven and 12 years. Why do we do that? Oh, yeah. Um, interestingly, exit, uh, when we do exit surveys, why, do you why are you leaving? Why are you not renewing your practicing certificate? 
Uh, with men, it's generally retirement or they're going to be a judge or they die. Not universally. Some leave to become solicitors, some leave to do something else. But those are the three main reasons. With women, they go in-house, they go into firms, they go on leave, they, they go into academia. Um, what does that tell us? It tells us that we're not doing things properly. We're not doing the right things for women at the bar. It's not the most um, attractive option. And I think that's really sad because the bar has a lot to offer women. And I've spent more, more of my life being a barrister than I have not been a barrister. So, you <laughs> so know. clearly you're loving it. What do you think, what do you think needs to be changed then to get women to stay at the bar? Well, I think one of the issues we need to deal with, and I think this also affects young men as much as it affects young women, is we need to manage, and I think the pandemic is doing this for us, manage flexibility. Mm -hmm. Because as much as we would love it to be a completely um, level playing field, I think when women have children, societal expectations are that they're the ones, you know, they're the ones childcare rings, they're the ones the doctor's surgery rings, they make the dental appointments. It's that unpaid emotional labour and unpaid managerial work of the home, you know, the managing the home, the housewife. We, we've picked up really great work roles, but we've also taken that role with us. And until society expects a parent to answer the phone rather than the mother to answer the phone, it's going to be very difficult to run a practice the same way that a man is able to run the practice. So I saw an interesting article the other day about, um, you know, uh, how to create your, your masterwork, which involves a lot of solitude. Mm -hmm. Mothers don't get solitude. <laughs> and um, you have to carve that out. Mm. I'm very privileged. I've carved that out with the help of a nanny or an au pair, um, my own chambers, an assistant, but that's with the weight of 30 years experience behind me. Coming to the bar now with a young child, um, one of the, one of the pol policies that I was able to put in place while I was president of the bar was um, a flexible practice, best practice guideline. So giving chambers uh, guidelines about how they can make anyone, not just women, but anyone who wants to practice flexibly, whether they're going on a sabbatical or they're caring for elderly parents or they're writing their thesis, how they can manage work at the bar and, and other things. And that has been quite helpful. What are some of the procedures that are in place that would allow chambers to be more flexible? Uh, one is for chambers to have a less um, hard line about how chambers are occupied. Now, most chambers are owned by a company and you lease from the company, whether the barristers own that company themselves or another, like, as in Wentworth and Selborne, Council's Chambers owns that owns the Chambers and you buy shares in that company. There are various different structures, but up when I first had my child, my, my oldest is now 18, um, our, our floor policy was if that was your room, you worked in it and that was it. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a state of policy, but you didn't license it out, you didn't uh, share it. And those kind of things make a lot of difference. So when I had my first child, one of my colleagues had had a baby, his wife had had a baby about six months earlier. And we ended up, he shared my chambers, which was great because we both had young children. We weren't there all the time and we would come in and out. And when we were both there, 
that was great. So it reduced overheads for me. Before that, I practiced at home way before we were all practicing at home. <laughs> and uh, I had to think very carefully and work with Chambers about how to set that up. And those structures have gone into this flexible policy, uh, flexible practice policy about how you can support people to work at home, share Chambers, be a bit more flexible about, about how you run your practice. Do you think post COVID, uh, Jane, will actually see some of those things implemented now that it's a little bit more familiar to us? Absolutely. Um, the courts have all said that they want to um, keep the, the good bits of it. The ability to do your directions hearings from your desk. It's a bit like telehealth, you know, there's no reason you need to trek off and sit at the GPs for you know, an hour and a half with a crying baby if you can do it, do it from home on the phone. Mm. Um, like that, the directions hearing lists are lots of matters being rolled over very quickly. You can ring into the registrar, have yourself on mute, your matter's called, here I am, this needs to happen. Uh, remote hearings are a bit more complex, but they work. Um, I've done, I haven't done many actually. I've I had a live hearing two weeks ago, which was bizarre, but just like old, you could sort of shut your eyes and pretend there wasn't a, a pandemic, but, um, but remote hearings do work and it's amazing to me, who's been trying to get more flexibility into the profession for a very long time, to see that you can do it all in six weeks if you have to. So <laughs> always remember when people say they can't do it, always ask whether they can't or whether they just don't think it's important enough to bother. Mm. And that's yeah. not a criticism of the courts, you know. We've been running courts since, what, the 1500s. So it's hard to change. I was going to say back onto the topic of having children at the bar. So when you're a solicitor or you work in-house, my understanding is they have lots of leave entitlements yeah. for um, their lawyers. And obviously at the bar, you're working for yourself when you only get paid for the matters that you do. Is that yeah. a big barrier for women as well? Because they could potentially have no income over that period? It is. And it's something you need to... Um, really, you really need to budget for. Uh, it's unavoidable in some ways that, you know, you work for yourself and you take time off. I always say, my boss is really mean, doesn't let me have any time off. <laughs> but, um, you know, what I, I took three months with my first off fully and then went back part-time and, and built it up. But I was able to do that because I had someone licensing my chambers. So I didn't have the overheads and I was practicing from home. Uh, when I had my second and third, which happened in the space of three minutes because I had twins, um, I took three months off again, thought I can do that, went back to work for one day and went, oh, no way. So <laughs> headed back on maternity leave. So, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be thoughtful about that, but it is a barrier. But again, why do we think about the costs of childcare, the costs of rearing children as a woman's problem. Yeah. Justin, you would know. Guys have something to do with it as well. It's a partnership. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's let's look at it as a as um, something that a couple that parents need to look at, not just um, what a woman needs to look at and budget for herself. So hopefully, I mean, I'm looking at it from a very hetero point of view there, but you know, people mainly have babies in partnerships, whether it's with another woman or with a man. Let's look at it as a family decision rather than a, a personal decision. Certainly, Jane. And that sort of leads into one of the questions I wanted to ask today, which is what is the role of young men and, and even 
even not so young men in kind of changing some of these uh, expectations and, and preconceptions? Um, huge. So there's big, big weight on your shoulders. Um, barriers facing women are usually caused by men, not with intent. They don't go, we're going to keep the ladies out. What they do is they just do things the same way that things have always been done. And like the courts, let's not snap back to normal because normal sucked in a lot of ways. Um, let's be thoughtful about what we do want to adopt and what we want to go forward. So what I think men can do, particularly men in heterosexual relationships with women, they can look at what needs to be done. They don't ask, how can I help? Because it's not, I might have given birth, but it's not necessarily my job to change nappies, you know, for example. What needs to be done? Do it. Um, on, a, on a more macro level, I think we need the voices of men in law firms and in, in chambers and in management positions to amplify the voices of women. So often a woman will say something in a meeting and uh, it's not the idea, the, the credit isn't given to that woman. And if you, and if you listen for it, you can hear it. Um, amplify the voices of women. You can say, oh, as Georgia just said, oh, Georgia's idea of X is fantastic. Getting that kind of thinking around, how can I not be part of the problem? And it's not enough just not to be actively bad. I think men need to be thoughtful and proactive. And that may mean having some uncomfortable conversations with women or uncomfortable reading, doing some feminist reading, thinking about um, how men occupy spaces without knowing it. And as I say, my poor boys <laughs> get a bit of a hard time because I don't let them get away with things. And, um, you know, they're always like, Oh, she's got, she's on it again. But, you know, learn that you can always learn. I'm still learning. I'm, I'm still learning from people who contact me and say, you know, you're a white privileged woman. Why are we hearing from you when we could be hearing from a more diverse person? And I've stopped accepting um, invitations to appear on panels talking about diversity and inclusion if I'm not, if I'm the person who's meant to be diverse. I'm an old white man without a Y chromosome. I mean, you know, not me. But yeah, it's a really good question. And I think the final thing for men to think about is calling out bad behaviour because men will listen to other men more than they will listen to women calling out that same behaviour. So even just a quick, dude, that's not appropriate or, hey, we don't make those kind of jokes here. Those little asides might need to be more forceful, but that's something that men can do. And, and Jane, you mentioned that you sort of call out your, your sons or educate them. I'm from a similar sort of family where I've got two older sisters and obviously my mum feels very passionate about it as well. What I've learned is, and you alluded to it there, is it is a lot, a lot of the time in the subtleties, um, you know, in, in the way you sort of start the sentence, in the way you acknowledge the contribution of a woman at, at the board table. Have you, have you sort of challenged that over your career? Have you felt that sometimes you've been silenced or undervalued a bit? Yes, I have. Funny you should ask. Um, when I was president of the bar, I did feel that uh, I had a much harder time than either my predecessor or my successor. And the messages didn't change very much over those, those periods. There was a lot of focus on equitable briefing, anti-bullying, um, anti-sexual harassment, 
grievance handling, all of those matters. And that was a, an ongoing process. Uh, my predecessor brought in a, a childcare program, uh, which where we guaranteed childcare places. Um, when that became an issue about whether the Bar Association should be doing things like providing childcare for its members. Um, it was my program. Clearly, I would be the only person who would bring it, bring it in. And it wasn't my program. It, you know, I was very proud of it, um, but it was started by my predecessor, who was a bloke. Mm. But um, one really obvious example was when I was chairing a meeting and there was an issue about someone in prison and a very obvious joke was made. And I turned to that person, I said, and I wasn't aggressive, I wasn't mean, I just said, look, rape jokes are never funny. And he was outraged, came up to me after the meeting and said, you know, you shamed me in that meeting, how dare you, it was just a joke. I said, it was a joke about rape. You don't joke about rape. You don't know who's at the table. You don't know their um, experiences. Rape jokes are never funny. But he was very, very upset with me for, I think, what he saw as a gendered calling out of him. But, you know, there's micro issues, there's macro issues, but um, I'm still here. <laughs> so, it's good. <laughs> I just, in that vein, do you agree that, I guess, jokes normalize perceptions and behaviors and that by joking about things like rape can make it subconsciously okay but it's not quite the right wording but do you know what i'm saying i do i do and i think there's been some really interesting things written on rape culture uh, about how normalization of rape and sexual sexual abuse makes it harder to draw the line for mm. people and uh, Justice Perham, who is a judge of the federal court, gave the leading judgment for the full court of the federal court on appeal recently in a matter called um, Hill and Hughes. And you might have seen that in the paper where um, the uh, solicitor who was appealing from a finding of sexual harassment against an employee appears said he wasn't sexually harassing her because he was romantically interested in her and his conduct was more like that of Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice in not taking no for an answer. And, you know, I'm named after Jane Austen. <laughs> the interesting thing about Mr. Darcy was um, when he proposed to Elizabeth Bennet, she said, no, you're really arrogant. You, you're, you know, you're, um, you're a terrible person. And what he did was he didn't get all fulminating and angry. He went away. He thought about that. He changed. He listened. And then he came back and was much more humble and said, and he did the work, you know, so Mr. He's, Mr. Darcy's not the right element there, but that judgment is a really great indicator of how intent is not necessary. So when people say, oh, I didn't mean it, you know, you don't take that as an answer. You can say to them, well, you may not have meant it, but how was it received? How do you think in that case, walking into your employee's hotel room dressed in your underwear, how do you think that would have been received, even if you had no intent to sexually harass her? So I think those, um, you know, th those kind of uses of language and uses of um, uh, excuses for conduct which is upsetting and, and sometimes quite horrifying is, is important to call out. Mm. Mm. So I think 
if you're um so in light of that judgment if you're a male or a female and you're thinking about doing something when intent actually isn't relevant what should you be thinking about before doing that i think you should be thinking about how it's going to be received yeah and one of the issues is people say oh but how can i you know most people meet their partners at work well maybe they do but they don't um I, th I think now what you need to do is not pursue things at work because one of the exhausting things about being a woman in a very male dominated environment is not being able to do your job um you know if you're constantly fending off invitations to go out if somebody's sort of leering at you around the corner if you know uh, you're being called gendered names like a bitch or whatever it's it's exhausting because you've got to think each time is this worth is this worth me putting my job on the line for it or is this worth me um, crawling this relationship that i have with this senior barrister or senior partner so i think what i think you should do if that is the case is leave work at work and if you think it's reciprocated then say something outside of work and if the answer is no then you absolutely, totally, positively accept that. Yeah, it's, it's, no means no. Seems like simple advice, but obviously there's a lot of people out there not following it. Mm. Um, Jane, do you think anything has changed, obviously with the, with the harrowing news of Justice Hayden this year? Has that played any part in maybe calling this out a little bit more effectively? Well, um, I was just talking to a colleague of mine and we, we joke about before and after 4.29 on the 22nd of June, which is when that dropped. Um, look, it was, it was extraordinary uh, for a number of reasons. Firstly, that it happened at the High Court, when one would, where, a place where one would think that moral probity and respect was a given. Mm. Uh, and of course, these are allegations. Um, the second extraordinary thing was the response of the Chief Justice to the, um, to the investigation. I thought the response that she gave was perfect. It was about believing the women, how hard it was, acknowledging how hard it was for them to come forward and how they were collectively and individually as, as the current court ashamed of what had happened. And I thought that was a really, very nuanced pitch from a woman who started in law as a receptionist in a Queensland law firm in her teens. So I'm sure she's seen some stuff. But, and I think that played into how she responded to these complaints in a very empathetic and very supportive way. And I think the third thing out of the Hayden allegations is that it's become much easier to talk to older men about sexual harassment. They now understand the question that's not about sexual attraction, it's about power, because the power imbalance between Hayden, a High Court Justice, and a first-year graduate, usually, um, is just so stark. Mm. Uh, it, it's about the inability to complain at the time. Um, you know, he's a High Court Justice, what are you going to do? and about the impact that it has on people's lives because a number of these women are no longer practicing law and i think that's you know you know not up there with the personal aspects of it but certainly part of the tragedy that we've lost some really great minds uh, and really talented women to these these issues 
have, have you noticed in your career, Jane, some of your fellow colleagues that are women that have kind of wanted to walk away or? Yep, absolutely. Um, I know a number of people who have left the bar because of this. I know a number of people who've been severely impacted, very, and I'm talking recent years. Um, I know a number of solicitors who have left firms um, because they have complained against somebody who is more senior and the firm has made, perhaps not overtly, but clearly <laughs> the choice of who they preferred to maintain. And, you know, I know a number of smart, clever, you know, well-regarded well women who are working well below their capacity, uh, I think, because of issues that may have impacted them earlier. I don't know that, but there are, there are more women who are underemployed than I know. You know, people who work, say, as a legal assistant rather than as a lawyer. And, you know, it, it, it really doesn't make sense until you start thinking of it as a structural, a structural problem. And then you think, oh, maybe it is a hostile work environment that keeps women out rather than choices, free, informed choices. You've certainly enlightened me, Jane, and it's definitely something that I'm going to be looking at in my own kind of professional scope. Just before we wrap up, is there something that you'd like to say on the topic to the, the your law students that are listening to this? And the... I would, and despite everything I have said, <laughs> Bar is an amazing place to practice. I don't want you to think that it's full of troglodytes and, and danger. It's, it's a really fun, um, challenging, terrific place. And if you are interested in the bar, go to some of the Bar Association um, Law Student Information Days. We have a female law student information day. We have a more general one. Uh, and, you know, we actively want smart young people to come to the bar, men and women, because from, from what I've seen, the young men coming to the bar are completely different from the people I came to the bar with 30 years ago. They, they are thoughtful and inclusive and they respect people and it's just terrific. So I really hope that um, life today is a bit different from what it was when I came to the bar. But having said that, give it a run, it's great. So that's what I would say. Yeah, it's up to us as the next generation to make it, I guess, a welcoming place as well. Yes. Do you have any advice to law students for if they see harassment or bullying in the workplace when they're entering the profession or if they already are in? Uh, if you're a bystander and it's happening to someone else, um, call it, either call it out or offer some assistance. You know, one of the things you can do, which is a very simple and non-threatening thing, is to go up to the person being harassed and say, hey, how are you? Just get into a conversation with them so they can move it away. If you see something or that needs to be reported, do report it. There are ways that you can do that if in a firm. If there's HR, if it's a more general um, complaint about a lawyer, you can actually make an anonymous complaint to the OLSC, the Office of the Legal Services Commissioner. They have a button on their website, anonymous complaints. If it's uh, and that informs their um, uh, looking at where there are structural issues. So if they get three or four complaints about the same person or firm, they can go in and start looking at that without tracking it back to the people who've complained. But if, particularly if you're a man, 
calling out other men, even in a gentle or a, you know, come on, mate, back off, or, you know, clearly she doesn't want you to do that, move away, or a more aggressive way of, you know, stop that. You've got to be brave, but it's worth it. And we really appreciate it. We don't need saving. We need help. Mm. So there you are. Well, Jane, it's been an absolute honour to talk to you today and definitely a lot to, to think about for both of us uh, moving forward. We hope that um, you've enjoyed it as much as we have. I have. It's been really fun. So good luck to both of you in your careers and to everyone listening. Well, thanks again, Jane, for coming onto the podcast and being one of our most esteemed guests. It's been an honour hearing about your opinions on sexual harassment and the bar. And hopefully our listeners have learnt a lot because I know that Justin and I have mm. as well. Anyway, I have been Georgia. And I've been Justin. And we'll see you next time at the bar. Mm-hmm.